Professor John Clark is um, Emeritus Professor at the Open University, for those of you who don't know him. Um, he's work has centred around ways in which the welfare states have been transformed since the late 20th century. And he's just published a book called um, Disputing Citizenship. Um, and he's working at the moment on a project with um, a team at Bristol University called New Sites of um, Legal Consciousness. He's also been contributing to a book called Governing by Inspection, which summarises the findings in our own project. So, over to you, John. Thanks, Jacqueline. Um, thanks for arranging this. Thanks to people for coming out on a Friday. Um, this, this is a sort of strange way to think that the weekend starts here. The, what I'm going to do is go very quickly through some things from the end of a project. Uh, and it overlaps in odd and disconcerting ways with Melanie's, uh, because at least two of the case study countries are the same. Though the project is entirely different. Uh, and, and the difference might be summoned up in, in one letter, uh, which is the, where Melanie has been talking about the effects uh, of inspection uh, I'm going to end up talking about the affects uh, of inspection. Uh, and that's important because this is not a study of uh, how inspection works. It's a study of how inspection functions as a way of governing education. And the governing is critically important. And we have three banal questions that started the project, which were, why inspect? This is at least a 19th century technique of governing. In the mid-21st century, why inspect? Okay. Uh, and, and that's carried in the second one, which is, well, we know why you used to do it. I mean, there are accounts of why it used to happen. Why still inspect? Why inspect now? Why still inspect? And then, because it is a comparative project of England, Sweden, and Scotland, why inspect in this way or in these ways? Because the three uh, inspection processes are entirely different. Uh, and I'm happy to talk endlessly. Um, if you've got a weekend, I'm happy to talk endlessly uh, about the, some of the differences in the systems. But I'm going to focus on one bit, um, which is the bit that uh, I and Jacqueline were most uh, involved in. Uh, those are sort of partial answers to the three questions. There is something important, we suspect, about direct observation which is different from the data mining that goes on about school performance. Uh, it makes visible things which cannot be read through data. It involves qualitative judgment and evaluation and not just data regularities and irregularities. And it's embodied. Somebody in all three of the systems that we're dealing with turns up they have rights of access and entry into what are more or less closed spaces. I mean, if you think about other inspection systems, into the police, into prisons, 
you know, they are strange spaces and there are embodied presences of inspectors. I'm happy to talk about that. But in the context of Ofsted, what I want to concentrate on are questions about uncertainty. Uh, uncertainty has begun in this process to fascinate me as a technique for, govern for governing potentially recalcitrant objects. Schools, teachers, head teachers, pupils, parents. Uncertainty has a critical role to play in the inspection process. And I'm going to suggest very quickly that the process of inspection produces uncertainty. It distributes uncertainty unequally. Some people get to be more uncertain than others. And in certain ways, it resolves uncertainty. Uh, and here's one of the head teachers that we talked about, we talked to, uh, uh, talking about the features of the inspection process that produce certain sorts of uncertainty. Certain sorts of uncertainty? If only I could speak English better, you'd have a more interesting time. Uh, can I assume that you can all read that extract? Or do you want me to be an embodied voice of the extracts? You can choose. It's, this is audience participation time. You don't have long to choose. You're all reading. Okay. And it has the critical feature of uncertainty related to questions of consistency and inconsistency. And that is both, in the longer part of the interview, both about who inspectors are, it's about the practice of inspection, and it's about the fact that the framework changes. And those of you who keep attending to your BBC, I, you know, I almost had those same slides. No, those of you who attend to your daily news will realise that frameworks change and frameworks change again. And soon, they'll change again. Uh, and that one of the changes that's done is to change the dynamics and the relationships of the process of inspection. And I'll come back to that. Uh, here is a reminder that the creation of uncertainty is intentional. This is the chief inspector insisting that the uncertainty of the arrival of inspectors is a critical element to discover reality. Since it's a Friday, I'm not going to have an epistemological moment about reality. But over lunch, as you eat the open universities, things that passes for food, you can have a worry about reality instead. But, but this, is, this is about particular forms of uncertainty as a way of organising governing. And then this is, not everybody is equally uncertain. This is one of the lead inspectors. So, on the plus side, we trust you. Outstanding schools, good, good schools. But at the other end of the scale, scales are, as we know, important. At the other end of the scale, we're saying, we don't trust you. This is when it was satisfactory, before it became needs improvement. We don't trust you. 
satisfactory is not good enough. So, uh, uns the uncertainty principle is not uh, a device of equality. It is about targeted mistrust. Uh, but it is not just uncertainty in relation to schools. Uh, and I haven't checked with Jacqueline about whether it was all right for me to have this extract up. It's just that my real favourite one is Michael Wilshaw, but he's not going to appear again today. But my second favourite one is this extract from an interview that Jacqueline did. And it's brilliant, because it's about the quality assurance process of the subcontracted inspection practice. And the submission of proper, adequate, good reports is subject to intense and extensive quality assurance processes. And the last three lines are about life, uncertainty, and its resolution. So in the end, what inspectors are doing is saying, OK, well, I have to follow this rule. There isn't a rule, but I have to follow it. And I just think that if you want labyrinthine versions of how life is ordered and organised, people who know that there are rules even if there are no rules and know that they have to follow them when they couldn't take you to it is an interesting moment. <coughs> and this is from the same field of practices. It's about ensuring consistency. And this is a inspect lead inspector talking about the fact that the quality assurance processes produce a certain standardised, consistent output. And they produce it to such an extent that he or she looks for the reports that they wrote, can find them, and doesn't recognise them. Consistency is a manufactured outcome of intense processes. Quality assurances in the complicated, distributed, dispersed, subcontracted, offset system are immense and intense. Okay. Uh, this project uh, and the work on it has taken me into places where I had not expected to be. I thought governing and inspection was quite interesting. And then I got stuck with trying to think about this as a field of relationships, which looks to me, and it's interesting about the effectiveness of feedback on organisational change, looks to me like a field of uh, at least dysfunctional relationships, uh, in which, uh, not because they are bad people, not because people behave badly, but because of the organisation of the positions in a field of relationships, driven by certain principles, which seem to me to be about the proliferation of uncertainty and the circulation of mistrust, look to me like, if you wanted to organise paranoia, this is how you would organise it. And I, you know, part of me thinks I ought to sign up for a 
psychotherapeutic organization uh, and offer them a course in how to organize paranoid relationships. It seems to me that it is a system of mistrust, and I was at a meeting not long ago where a former senior figure uh, from Ofsted said, well, you have to remember that Ofsted was set up to humiliate Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Education. And I thought, I, I sort of know that's true, but I thought, it, I thought the use of the word humiliate was a very interesting reflection on the transfer from the old HMI to Ofsted. And it was about displacing a certain way of conducting inspection, a certain sort of culture of inspection, and a certain set of relationships and practices. In place of which, uh, a set of <coughs> understandings that public services and schooling in particular and then inspection is to be organised through principal-agent relationships is a critical moment. Principal-agent relationships come out of public choice uh, theory of, um, from the United States, which was uh, a critical literature for informing new public management. And it argues that it is better if you separate the principal who wants something to happen, uh, who then contracts with an agent who will make that thing happen. Uh, and you can see the principal-agent separation in all sorts of places in public service reform. And it is true about the organisation of inspection under offset. But the problem is principal-agent relationships are ones which are profoundly mistrustful. Principals never quite believe that their agents will do what they are supposed to do. And so you write more and more complicated contracts. Uh, uh, um, the suspicion that is at stake in that then floats around the inspection system. Ofsted, institutionally, intrinsically, is a suspicious organisation. It suspects schools, it suspects teachers, it suspects local authorities, and it suspects subcontracted inspections. And it is worried that schools do gaming, schools and local authorities do coasting, they don't try hard enough, and that they are populated with the wrong attitudes. They think about the world in the wrong way. At the same time, and as it were in reverse, schools suspect inspectors of being inconsistent, unreliable and untrustworthy. Uh, and you know that that form that that <laughs> debate takes is they have not been in the classroom recently enough. They have not been in the school recently enough. How would they know about teaching? <coughs> it certainly suspects, schools certainly suspect Ofsted and certainly suspect the chief inspector. Uh, and I will tell you at some point in the day my favourite quote from Michael Welsh. So these are some moments from what I, we have been trying to think through about not the effectiveness uh, of school inspection, but the affectiveness of school inspection. What, what are the relationships and dynamics that are in place that might indeed account for some of the distances and discomforts that stop learning taking place? 
So uh, this is a nice little extract from a Guardian article. Um, an Ofsted inspector. I just think it's nice because it has the, it has the almo, it has the reciprocal relationship. I'm nervous, and so are you. Uh, and it's a reminder that reciprocity is not the same as equality. <laughs> I'm an inspector. I'm nervous. You're a teacher. You're nervous, and you really ought to be. This is a head teacher uh, talking about her, uh, what is it, her fifth full inspection as a head teacher. And it's there because it condenses stuff that people talk about a bit in the interviews. But it condenses, I mean, because it's written for a newspaper, it condenses it into, you can, I don't know, can you not feel the body strained by that process? It is, you know intensely affected, dazed and battered. Uh, and again, I, I'm trying to insist that this is about a field of relationships. It is not just about stress on teachers and head teachers. It is about a field. And so here's the head of inspection services talking about people dropping out of inspection because it contains an emotional charge uh, and an effective difficulty. So, this is to try and drag myself out of this into thinking about what that's all about. Uh, and uh, I have to say, predominantly because words that begin with gov, G-O-V, um, yes, I know, I know he is the man who put the word gov into government, uh, but still... Uh, uh, words that begin with gov are, in academic terms, largely owned by political scientists. Political scientists don't believe people are people. They, belie they believe that they are rational, calculating subjects. Uh, and, uh, and the downside of that is that questions about emotion and affect never appear around questions of government and governing. And so this is an attempt to sort of start thinking about what happens at that edge. Uh, and one of the things that starts happening is to try and think about three different things, which are sort of in play in the inspection process. One is about governing affect, which is given that people are emotional and affective subjects, how do you govern in ways that control that and keep it calm, keep people quiet? Uh, and the Swedish model, I think, has some interesting things about that because it is profoundly legally framed. So it, it is both bureaucratic and juridical. It investigates cases. It searches for evidence in a rather forensic style. And that's one way of trying to cool out potential emotion and affect. The second one is governing through affect. How do you use affect to govern effectively? And at the moment, we're trying to work out whether Scotland is particularly interesting because it rests on the affectionate inspector. The Scottish inspectors have at the centre of their training uh, uh, work with psychologists on social skills and interpersonal relationships. 
And part of that is to say, how do we do effective feedback? How do we do effective school improvement? Well, you do that by sharing the world with teachers and head teachers, rather than coming in as an external force. Uh, and so we're interested about whether, as it were, learn, learning that people are people uh, is, a, is an interesting step forward uh, in that. And then the third bit is my current obsessions with the affects of governing. That governing processes produce, perhaps unintentionally, though the humiliation point suggests not always unintentionally, the, the governing processes might produce affects. So that, that's where this project that I got involved in four years ago and thought, you know, I know nothing about schools. I know nothing about education. I've heard of Ofsted. Um, <coughs> has got me into a whole new set of trials and tribulations and fun, and fun uh, in the process. Uh, and so this is an attempt at the concluding slide, which is I do think the uncertainty principle is extremely important. I think the production and distribution of uncertainty is a way of trying to organise school inspection as a productive and effective device. I think the fact that it might not be is an interesting thing. But then the uncertainty multiplies. It is sort of potentially in terms of thinking about an education system in England now... <laughs> out of control, that schools are profoundly uncertain about their futures, that the system itself is increasingly difficult to discern in terms of what will hold it together and keep it working as a system. The inspection also has an uncertain future and the uh, the moments uh, generated by the intricate relationship between the Secretary of State, uh, conservative think tanks, uh, uh, would be independent of scrutiny schools, uh, and the Chief Inspector looks to me like as unstable, a, it's not a triangle, triangles are relatively stable. A multi-pointed set of relationships looks profoundly unstable and I suspect if I was working for Ofsted I'd find my future a touch uncertain uh, at the moment. And it produces unstable affects. I think people wrapped in relationships of mistrust, suspicion and paranoia are not likely to deliver of their best. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much for listening to me. Have one of them. Thanks very much, John. That was a very, very, very interesting presentation. Um, it's nice to think about the effective dimensions of inspection. Um, having been inspected <coughs> on many occasions myself, as one particular um, instance sticks out in my mind when I was teaching languages and we were told we had to speak in target for the uh, inspector the entire lesson. Um, 
And I remember the inspector coming in and uh, the sweat pouring off me. And then finally, at the end of the session, she said, oh, yes, well, you did remarkably well, my dear. And I said, oh, thank you for that. I'm quite interested what you thought of my teaching of the subjunctive. And she said, I don't really know, my dear. I, my language is not Spanish, it's German. And the entire session had been taught, of course, in Spanish from start to finish, so it was quite interesting how that made me feel. Anyway. <laughs> um, any questions for John? Yes, thank you. I think that's, you know, it's really interesting and We've got a lot of past literature on the emotional effects of Ofsted, lots of it. And I'm certainly doing it on the emotional effects in teacher education. And the data is damning, I would say. It's very hard to find. And it's because of the regime of fear, really, which is, is what you're talking about. And, um, you know, it seems to be sort of just very deliberate and chosen politically um, but one of the problems I think we have in education is that affect is generally unrecognised as a major part of how learning happens. And, you know, I, I worry a bit about um, sort of academic education, but it doesn't, it doesn't approach this enough. It doesn't <laughs> investigate it enough and see how central it is. I mean, teachers... You know, they live their work. They don't just go to work and do it like maybe in an office. It's very, very personally important to them. And so these things are bound to happen if you have some sort of system that's governed by fear, I would think. And, and, I mean, I both agree with that, and I want to push it a bit, because I think you're right that there is a substantial literature about the emotional effects of inspection and so on. But that's almost all concentrated, as it were, on the recipients of inspection. And I, I guess what I want to insist on is that it's worth thinking about the relationships of a systemic process as a whole, and that everybody is bound up in that. Right? And even the chief inspector, who, not, in, not yet in my favourite quotation, described himself the other day, after the... Uh, when the two think tank reports were being flagged up, uh, described himself as split, spitting blood, you know, and said, I suspect that there are people doing, and you think, yes, and uh, that's both true, and it's the language of paranoia in which this field operates, right? So I do, I, I don't, it, it, I, you know, I, I know that reciprocity is not equality, but I am interested by the fact that subcontracted inspectors, you know, heads of inspection, and even the chief inspector are sort of caught in a set of relationships which are, I think, I think the, what, the not fit for purpose, I think, would be the... Yeah? I'm very kind of frustrated when I come to these sorts of uh, sessions. Sorry, could you just... These sorts of block? sessions. Uh, yeah, I'm Jonathan Block, um, school teacher, but uh, 30 years school teacher, 10 years head teacher, uh, trainee inspector, because I was doing that as a head teacher, um, but I'm also doing a PhD, or no, I'm not really doing a PhD at the Institute, 
I've got away without being caught, uh, on the mental health of head teachers, because a lot of the guys where I was working were struggling for all sorts of things. But I just want to know is do we do, and, and when I hear audience in here, there's always this sort of laughter at everything about inspection. As a head, it was very helpful for me, and I went through about five from when there were 15 inspectors stormtrooping in, kicking in doors, through to the gentler approach, which is what's supposed to be happening now. Um, is there a general belief that inspection is bad? End of story. Because I think it's how it's done often, not necessarily whether it should be done. But if there's a general belief that inspection is bad, aren't we kind of biasing our work generally? Because everybody wants to find anything negative, and there will always be, and I don't know, you know, I think you can go into a classroom. I go into classrooms all the time as a head, and I could tell a lot. And I spent all my life into classrooms. I could even go into primary school, and I only speak, head, I only speak secondary. And I could tell when there was a, a positive, constructive, you know, the right sort of lesson going on where children were, were doing well, from whatever starting point they came from. So I'm just always concerned that there's this sort of, we, we bias everything we say because we think inspection's wrong because teachers don't want to be monitored in that way, and even use the word monitored. Even some of the words we use in some of these documents, and language is important, they're kind of negative words about things. And I just, just wonder, because before we understand that bit, I can't relax, to be honest. <laughs> no, well, I don't know you should relax. I'm not relaxed. But, but I think there are, there are I, I want to make two distinctions. One is that I think it's important not to talk about... Uh, there's a risk of not talking about inspection in general. Yeah. Uh, if, if I'd done a different thing about this project, the three different systems that we look at yeah. produce very different relationships and very different... Cons I, d I don't want to say effects because I'm not convinced, but different consequences. Um, Certainly, if you'd heard us talking about the Scottish ones, they are thought to be careful, engaged, productive. Swedish ones are caught somewhere in between, but um, a, a strange mutation because of the law uh, and because they are also triggered by legal complaints by parents and pupils. So I, I don't want to have an inspection in general. I, I am increasingly obsessed by Ofsted, which seems to me to have a, a... is not a singularity. It has a complicated change in career. And I have talked to a lot of head teachers who said exactly what you did. Right? Inspection can be useful, can be productive. They have had really good experiences. Many of them have trained as inspectors, and that makes them think about the complicated relationships at stake in it. And yet, and yet, it seems to me that there's something odd uh, uh, about how we got to the model we got to. Um, so I want to say I'm sort of in favour of inspection. I think uh, I can think of very few organisations um, public and private, that should not be open to public scrutiny. I, I'm, sh I can think of very few that should not be... I am in favour of inspectors going into prisons. I'm in favour of inspectors going into schoolrooms. I'm even in favour... I wouldn't trust me with a barge pole. So I'm in favour of my stuff being inspected. That's fine. Uh, 
but I think you have to think about, as it were, both the practice and the politics of what, how inspection is ordered and what you think it's for. We need to talk always about the You've lost the mic. You, you, you're going to not be recorded for posterity. It's not that you don't have a nice voice. It's that the people in the future will need to hear what you're saying. Well, when they used to expect there to be a dip in results after post-inspection and it became normalised, yes. that was okay, or it was that time, Yes. You know, kind of it defeated the object oh, slightly. Indeed. But having gone into a school that was completely out of control... The inspection that came as soon as I arrived there was very, very helpful. And, oh. and it gave me. And now that there is more of an indication that you can give some guidance and advice, which I believe is, is, is a new thing, it can be useful. But, but I just, it's that underpinning. If we think inspection is bad, then everything we're going to say, all our research and everything, seems to just reinforce that. No, I, well, I'm, I'm, I'll say it again. I don't, I don't think that's the presumption. I, I think the thinking about the different regimes and practices and relationships through which inspection is ordered is critical. Sorry, thanks. Just to come back on that, um, I'm not, you know, I think if you've looked into the literature, currently we have no evidence that inspection improves. Now, that is our problem as researchers. You can go through the whole gamut of literature and there is nothing to say that it, it helps. But there's massive literature to say that it's incredibly damaging to mental health, for example. So that's... And the other thing you would see if you, if you read the literature is that heads, like yourself, and, you know, I've taught all my life and I've taught in schools and universities and I have to do, you know, cope with the inspection in universities too, which results in job losses and so on. But heads find it much more helpful than staff, right? And that's what the literature says as well, because you're faced with a position of trying to um, control and improve, if whatever, you know, your terminology is. And that, so if an inspector comes in and says, yes, this needs doing all that, that can help managers in their jobs in schools. That, that's in the literature too, and it's very clear. It's the one thing that comes out very clearly. But the effect of good staff, really good staff being, you know, forced to exit the profession because they can't cope with this process and really creative, exciting teachers finding, and in universities, for example, our university spends all its time planning for Ofsted. It shouldn't be doing that. It should be looking at interesting, high-level um, developments in its courses to improve the quality of teacher training. It should not be seen trying to meet Ofsted's bizarre criteria where every teacher has to be outstanding on exit. I mean, you know, it's just, uh, they, they can't fail. They're not allowed to be poor and we're not allowed, you know, we're not allowed to have poor teachers. Well, what a ridiculous state of affairs. We can have poor politicians, but we're not allowed to have poor teachers. And I just think that if you look at the literature, then if you're doing a PhD, rather than just basing it on your own personal experience, if you look at the literature, it is damning. And we should as, a, you know, as people, be trying to understand how we can change this. And I think with the, um, the idea of the old HMI and the Scottish inspection, it's a very, very different thing. And, and we also have to understand the politicisation. If you want to, to you know, free 
bring a free market into education or a health service or wherever, you denounce people. That is how the system works. They want to make things look really terrible so that they can privatise it. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's so obvious. It, it's frightening, I think. And I'm not sure that... We, I think we're too naive. We, 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 let these, we, we assume these people have got really important good principles, but they haven't. They've got a market economy stuck in their heads, and we're at the, you know, we're at the receiving end of that. And it's naive to think that there is no plan for education that is not to just pr uh, privatise it, I think. Sorry about that. I find it an emotional experience. <laughs> John? <laughs> well, I, I want to go back to the earlier thing about I think that, that, that I don't... This is not to have an argument about the politics of education in this country, but it is about what it is the inspection might do in relation not just to schools but to hospitals. Okay, I sort of am worried by Staffordshire. You know, I'm worried that I might be on a GP's list who kills people. Um, I'm not. I'm not. I like my GP. He's not Harold Shipman. Uh, I'm worried about the Metropolitan Police, Police's strike rate on non-white stop-and-search policy. I'm worried by which prisons have high rates of uh, suspicious death. I, I, and I'm also worried about the large numbers of private corporations that do astonishingly bad things, whether or not they're doing services for the public. So I am, and sadly, I'm an old-fashioned sort of statist uh, about this. I think that there is a public interest in almost everything that takes place that requires an agency that tries to protect the public interest. That's not my problem. My problem is how not to do it destructively. And I think the destructively is worrying in, in a whole number of places. And we could, should do that better. I was reading... No, I wasn't. I'm going to sound as though I was reading a book. It's not true. I was reading a review of a book. Um, which is where sad old academics end up. You read reviews of books to see if there's any books that you really ought to buy because it's very hard. Um, uh, written by a neurosurgeon. The book written by a neurosurgeon. Um, and the review said, Andy's a bit sad about the number of procedures, uh, institutional procedures rather than medical procedures, that now control the practice without improving or even enabling the practice of neurosurgery. And that seems to me to be the regulatory problem, which is how do you do these things in ways that don't stop good things, that encourage more good things, but might nevertheless minimise bad... I don't think you'll stop, but might minimise bad things. But that's a rather grand debate from... <laughs> Ron... Thanks. I mean, I think that's the key point. I think this business of assessing things, including public, is incredibly difficult, how to do it properly. Um, and, uh, but my sense is that the kind of thing that happens here, uh, it, where you have small, time-bound samples, and especially when it's high stakes, 
that's a real problem. It reminds me of the issue of, of exams for pupils. You know, if, if, as Gove wants, everything tends to be focused on the one exam thing, you get huge problems, and it's, I think it's the same thing here. Um, I did for a couple of years. I was uh, an assessor for the Quality Assurance Agency on courses in, in my field, and one of the things that struck me about that and that, that was, you know, two-day, one, two-day things. The number of times that I was told that key people were not able to be present for one reason or another, unexpectedly at the last moment. And it was usually, I mean, sometimes it might have been to do with the developing stress and pressure. But other times it was just because of life events. You know, it was about family bereavements or th just things that happened at the last moment which were even more important than the actual, mm -hmm. you know, which was quite something. And I, I think somehow we have to find a way of assessing things. And, of course, with the unannounced thing, that makes it in some ways even worse, in other ways perhaps better. Um, we have to find a way somehow of assessing these services in a different way, and I think that was the point you were just making, John, because I think this type of system is, does have those major problems because just things, just at that particular time, in that particular moment, how can you get a proper, accurate assessment? I, I, I think the accuracy of such processes of all sorts is the one of the hardest political questions and it's not I think just a matter of can you be sure that what you see is reality it's how would you know when you're not looking right and I one of the interesting things about the Swedish one um, as a as a model of school inspection I'm going to come to shell oil and petrol in a moment because I think it raises a different challenge but the Swedish model has a process of complaint-generating inspection. It is parents or pupils are entitled, only as individuals, you can't have class actions, but, but as individuals, to raise a complaint against the school, which requires this thing to be looked into. And that's a... I mean, that's a, I mean uh, it's, it's very interesting because it, it, it displaces the trigger from you know, performance to practice um, or modes of interaction. So I think that, I do think that's interesting, though I think it then has other problems. Jeez. Why, why would you, if I was a parent, why would you trust me to be, you know, a sensible person acting? And part of the problem is how you find sensible people. All right, but I just want to say quickly uh, about Shell. Now, if we wanted to do inspection, as opposed to auditing, financial auditing, and there are problems with financial auditing, how would we inspect the conduct? Since it's, it is English and Netherlands, I think, coupled again. In, if we wanted to inspect the conduct of an organisation like Shell, what inspection system would we require for that sort of thing? How would we find whether they had paid money to unofficial militias to empty villages in Nigerian deltas so that they could access their oil? How would we discover breaches of reasonable conduct? 
Uh, and it's why I said originally that I think both public and private organisations require things to be spent. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm upset by Shell. I'm quite upset by British Petroleum as well. I'm quite upset by lots of people. And every now and then, the vengeful me that is quite upset by them would quite like to be on a team of inspectors that went and said, well, you know, terrible things happen in the National Health Service, it's true. Terrible things happen in schools. On the other hand, uh, and one of the nice things about Joseph, what's his name? Now, I am an emeritus professor. You get to be an emeritus professor for a reason, and that's because you can't remember things. Uh, and uh, economist? Stieglitz. Stieglitz, see, director of the World Bank for a while. And one of the lesser-known things by Joe Stieglitz is a piece about accountability. And it's a lovely piece because he says accountability is a really important thing. And indeed, it's such a good thing that he taught to apply to all organisations, not just public service ones. <laughs> I can do this. Um, just a very brief question, uh, again, being from the outside here, from, from Ireland. Um, I'm very interested to the extent to which nobody has taken up the kind of challenge of uh, our colleague from Sunderland, I think, is it? I mean, uh, externally, the view of Ofsted would be uh, dreadful, horrible, scary, but very effective. But yet, the charge was made that the literature shows no evidence at all. As I say, externally the view would be, yes, Ofsted raises standards, it brings up the weakest schools, it gets rid of the most underperforming teachers, blah, blah, blah. Is, is, is there no truth in that? See, be truth before lunch. You're a, you're a demanding audience. Um, the, the answer is that the evidence is variable, but the comparative evidence is it has large areas of ineffectiveness uh, in its own terms and comparatively. And one of the dilemmas, and this is where it goes to paranoia, I think, is when Ofsted was set up, one of the things it was going to do was to share all its data with researchers. Uh, and I think, I mean, the only comment, no, you can't have another go. The, the, the question about when that's going to happen still preoccupies people. And I think that's part of uh, a certain sense of institutional paranoia, which is if we do those things, people are going to say nasty things about us. And Ofsted, I think, has a, an, does, like most of us, have a thing about being solid, Serious, committed, and anxious. Anxious. And I think, I'm, I'm now going to do my, I've saved it as long as I can, I'm going to do my little Michael Wilshaw moment. So Michael turns up at the National Association of Governors annual conference last year and begins his speech by saying, well, uh, if you believe what you read in the press, I, I'm seem to have built up a rather terrible reputation. I just want to tell you that I'm quite a nice man, really. 
Here is this powerful figure who begins in the paranoid mode, which is, people are nasty about me. Don't, tr don't believe them, I'm nice. It's true of me too. People say all sorts of terrible things about me, but I'm quite nice really. And I don't think winsome charm is a political resolution of the problem of paranoia. I'm interested in this notion of, not, not that governance right wrong, but the, the differences we get in between, comparatively between different countries, yep. because I've taught and been trained and worked in various situations, um, different contexts. Um, and historically, to my experience as a young teacher in New Zealand, of, um, of the New Zealand equivalent of eight, because we moved from HMI to Aero and, and in similar situations, but not so high stakes, I think, as it's been here. Um, my experience as a young teacher was, was a very, very positive experience of inspection. And it was couched within uh, 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 supporting, a professional supporting of the inspector supporting me as a young teacher. And one of the questions I've really been interested in as, as an working with an educational history or a um, field, which is my subject discipline, is um, why, what's happened to these notions of professionalisation within um, and, and the, the support. It seems like that what I've seen in these uh, working in England here and coming from a New Zealand and Australasian context is that we've actually had a shift of definition of what inspection is about during my whole career. And also I think, as you were saying, that there are quite strong differences between the different countries in, in terms of what governance is, what governance is for. And, and historically I'm really interested, I've been looking recently at the 1980s and at, I'm really interested in your notion of um, the governance and the, the way that, and taking it back much more to a, towards a genealogy in terms of where it's originated from. So I've been back and read um, Chris Woodhead's Class War. I've been back and reading Road... It's wonderful Road reading. Boys. My husband thinks I'm mad. But I've been reading Rose Boyson's biography. I've been back through the kind of times and the, the comments. I mean, what really strikes me, particularly as a person who didn't have a lived experience of that myself, because was when I was working in New Zealand, we did not have that kind of struggle. But there wasn't the kind of um, thatch right attempt at the teacher union. I, I didn't experience that at all. There wasn't this kind of whole... Um, and what you see, I think, very clearly in, in Woodhead trying to outline that beginning of Ofsted is it's a huge kind of... It's, it's called the class war. It's couched in notions of struggle and conflict. And it seems to me that I'm therefore not surprised that the whole notion of... The notion of governing that's arisen from that, that you are finding, is this notion of conflict. And I think... I was wondering if you could even suggest it goes deeper than that and to pick up people like um, Jim Marshall's work and looking at neoliberalism, it's actually almost uh, a decline and, and, a, and a demolition almost of, of, of a notion of professionalism that some of these intingent and intrinsic fights that are going on are about um, what is the teacher as a professional as well and, and to what agency and control they, do they have over their professional lives. And I think that's being played out in my home country in different ways to how it's been played out here. Oh, what, a lot, what a lot of exciting things. Um, uh, Rose Boyson. Before uh, this is like truth and Rose Boyson before lunch on a Friday is pushing me to the limits of what I know. Um, yes, uh, 
and that's a yes which says, yes, there it was conceived of as uh, the necessity of an assault, not on teachers, not even on schooling, but on the world of public institutions through which British public life was organised uh, in the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, and it seems to me that if one thinks that that moment of break in the 1980s was not about the world intention to restructure the organisations, the people and the culture of public institutions, I, you know, I, that's my life. That's my grown-up life has been in the consequences of that. And the consequences are varied and they are contradictory and they are by no means simple. But yes, um, you know, the decision to change education, to change universities, I mean, you know, in, I, don't, I don't mean that we suffered in the same way, but the same Education Act abolished tenure. Uh, in universities. And that's significant for trying to introduce a certain quietism uh, among a potentially critical, liberal, left-leaning, social democratic bunch of wimps and whining idiots. Uh, but if you worked in local government or in the National Health Service in that period, you would have seen equivalent waves of decomposition, fragmentation, principal-agent relationships. I used to work on social work and community care. Okay? Take local authority, social services apart, and produce purchasers and providers. And you are required to spend 50% of your community care budget to, simu to stimulate, not simulate, though that's of course what happens, to stimulate a market, to bring in diverse providers, and it seems to me that in, in critical ways, none of those key terms of reference has changed between ooh, May the 4th, 1979, and now. Uh, it is reworked, reinvented, repolished, and so on. Uh, I will have a long conversation with you about whether neoliberalism is an adequate way of accounting for those changes. I'm not convinced it is, but that's another matter. But all of that has gone on, and one of the things it does... <coughs> is to produce one of the conditions of a particular mode of inspecting, which is that school is now uh, quasi-independent. I don't mean a free school, but a quasi-independent organisation that is invited to imagine itself as a small to medium-sized economic agent, just like universities are. They are now competitors. Uh, and whatever the complicated network of relationships that used to exist were, and I'm going to say something about them before I shut up, the organisational form that most of us are now supposed to live and work in is of a small business or a medium business because that's how resources flow, that's how success is calculated, that's where success... So, you know... Schools are not responsible for the performance of the national education system. They are responsible for their success. Universities are not responsible for the state of higher education in 
where? The United Kingdom, the world, whoever? No, they're responsible for meeting their targets and becoming world class at something or other. Um, don't get me started on my senior management. Now, there is the problem with the neoliberalism story. No, many problems with it. The one problem I want to focus on is a certain sort of romantic nostalgia. And I once had a long argument with a leading uh, Labour MP about whether April 1979 was the peak of human civilization, which was then destroyed by the arrival of Margaret Thatcher uh, and followed up by all those other people, uh, right up to the Cameron Osborne moment. Do you know... In April 1978, I and lots of people that I knew were locked in struggles to make complaints, to do criticism, and to transform different bits of public services. Why was it that, you know, social... Ha I'm just about the particular concentrated moment of this debate with the former Labour MP. Why was it that public housing in Camden, progressive labour authority, was racially discriminatory, was gendered in profoundly regressive ways. And I think you'd say that I'm, my romance about the university is not the view that there was once a wonderful, warm, cohesive academic community on principles of collegiality and generosity no. A lot of people of my generation were in universities fighting to change them. This was not quite the thing that we wanted to change them to. But I'm not, don't take me back to April 1978. Right? It wasn't the failed social democratic, even miserable laborist promised land. That, and the problem with the neoliberal critique is it sometimes sounds as though Actually, things were quite good then. Well, uh, you know, I remember Jim Callaghan, even if nobody else does. Uh, and no amount of neoliberals stomping on my dreams will change my sceptical, suspicious view of that moment. <laughs> well, that's got that off my chest. How are you feeling now? That sounds like a very fit fitting moment to break for lunch. So thank you very much again, and thanks once again to Melanie for the presentation.